You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. All right, everybody. Well, we'll pray and we'll jump into the word tonight. We're going to cover a lot of good stuff tonight. Y'all ready for it? Yes. Yes. Me too. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for another opportunity, Lord, that we have gathered here in your name. And Father, we thank you for the word of God. And we approach your word tonight reverently and with honor. And Father, we look to you to receive tonight. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said he is our teacher. And so Holy Spirit, we give you permission to bring revelation and insight, light and illumination to us tonight. Thank you for causing your word to come alive on the inside of us and especially about your covenant. And Father, we thank you for it. Lord, we we get little glimpses of how important this is to you. Father, may it it grow deeper in our hearts and our understanding of what you have done in order to enter into a covenant relationship with us and all that provides for us and all that you did for us in the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for it. Lord, we believe to receive tonight and we give you praise for it in advance in Jesus name. Amen. All right. Well, if you'd like to turn to our foundation scripture in Hebrews chapter eight, verses six and seven, Hebrews chapter eight, verses six and seven. And those verses say this, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. Speaking of Jesus, in as much as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. And so as we've been saying every week, as we've been building this, it's not that the old covenant was bad. It was good, but the new covenant is better. And so it's established upon better promises. And the main thing is, is it's established on something that is uh, far more sure. And that is what the Lord Jesus did for us to, to establish that covenant. And so we've covered a lot of material in the previous three weeks, and I encourage you, if you've missed any of it, go to the website and listen to the lessons and download the notes. But we've talked about the Abrahamic covenant and everything that was involved with that last week. We talked about how God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and and, uh, how that was part of the covenant relationship, because in a covenant relationship, what you require of me I can require of you. So when God tapped Abraham on the shoulder and asked him to sacrifice his only begotten son, then mankind in turn could require in a covenant that God sacrifice his only begotten son. And so it's absolutely awesome what God did. And so what I want to do tonight is we're going to move forward in time a little bit from the time of Abraham and look to the look to Moses and the children of Israel in their time of captivity in Egypt. And uh, I want us to go to Genesis chapter 15. And I want to look at what God told Abraham at the, the night. We've looked at this portion of scripture several times. And this is when uh, God and the Lord Jesus 
cut covenant together. You remember God had Abraham take the, the animals, cut them in half. He split them apart and a uh, deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And as he was uh, there, the Lord Jesus and God, the father passed in between those pieces and established a covenant. But I want to point out something that we've kind of read over quickly, but I want to just highlight it tonight. And in verse uh, 12 of chapter 15, it says, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, a horror, a great darkness fell upon him. So it was nighttime. This was getting ready to happen. Then, then he, God said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here, talking about the promised land, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So a couple of things are going on here. Uh, we see that God gives Abram some insight as to what his descendants are going to experience. And as you know, we get the behind the scenes look and we saw what happened where Isaac and uh, his whole family ended up, or excuse me, Jacob and his whole family ended up moving down to Egypt because of the great famine. And you know, the story of Joseph and how Joseph made the way through God's favor and promotion on his life to be able to provide for his entire family. And if you think about it, you know, God through his divine wisdom put, put Joseph where he needed to be so that Joseph would be in a position to save an entire nation. Although there was only about 70 people that originally went down there, as you know, uh, by the time 400 years passed, there were close to 2 million of them that came out during the Exodus. And so God built a nation out of that, that small group of people, that 70 that went down there. And so God tells him, he gives Abram the promise and he says, I will bring them out. I'll judge the nation that, that is, that has them. And, and, uh, then the other thing I want you to see is in verse 16, it says in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And what that means is God was dealing with, with the people that were in the promised land at the time, while the children of Israel were still in Egypt. He was dealing with them, giving them opportunity to repent, giving them opportunity to get right with him, and, and they consistently turned their backs on him. And so when he said that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete, one translation says that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. And so what God was doing is he was giving them every available opportunity to be able to repent and to get right with him before the children of Israel would be coming through. Uh, because as you know, when the by the time the children of Israel came through, their instructions were uh, to destroy everybody. And so, uh, you know, God in his mercy was trying to look out and to minister to the Amorites and uh, by the time the children of Israel got there, their iniquity was full and complete. And so we know that 400 years later, here's the interesting thing about this, God still had not forgotten the covenant that he had made with Abraham. Look at Exodus chapter 2, please. 
Exodus chapter 2. And uh, not to jump around, but we're going to look at a, some different things here. But Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and 20 through 25, the Lord says this. Now, it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Now, this was the Pharaoh that was friendly to Joseph, that poured out great favor on Joseph, of course, by God's hand. And so then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. By the way, let me say this. Does anybody know why they're called the children of Israel? Well, let me say it. Israel was not a nation at the time. Israel was the new name that Jacob had been given. So all these people are descendants of Jacob. Okay, so you remember the 12 sons that came down. Uh, they were all sons of Jacob. And so when God changed his name, it, he changed it to Israel. And so therefore, now these people were called the children of Israel. Okay, just, just left FYI. So then the children of Israel uh, groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning, and listen to this, God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. So it wasn't necessarily uh, the, the, the situation that the children of Israel were in at the time, although it was bad and, and it, it touched the heart of God, obviously, but the reason God responded the way that he did was because of the covenant relationship that he had with Abraham. So God remembered his covenant with Abraham, and that's why he sought to deliver the children of Israel. So the children of Israel did not deserve the deliverance. They couldn't earn the deliverance. They received it uh, because of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And here's the good news for us. With the covenant that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, God does not forget that covenant. So even though you and I might drift away, even though you and I, you know, might find ourselves in some difficult situations, you need to know and understand that God has not forgotten his covenant and in turn has not forgotten you and will respond to you, not necessarily because of you, he loves you, but he responds because of the covenant relationship that he has with Jesus, the promise that was made to the Lord Jesus, and the fact that the price was paid for God's people. And so with the children of Israel, there's just one challenge that is present with these people. Because of their bondage for 400 years, they have forgotten who God is. You know, as you can imagine, um, you know, how people get off course in a very short period of time. Can you imagine what ha would happen with a whole nation of people over 400 years and how far they could drift away from the things of God? And that's exactly what happened. The other thing is, too, to always remember when, when you're referring to them is that when they were in bondage for 400 years, they didn't provide for themselves. They didn't think for themselves. They had somebody that told them when to get up, when to go to bed, when to eat, who they could, you know, all these different aspects of their lives were controlled by the Egyptians. 
And so therefore, when this generation came out of Egypt, they had to be taught everything. That's why God had to get so basic with them. You know, and I don't mean to be crude when I say this, but God had to get as plain with them about telling them what to do when they went to the bathroom, when they were out in the wilderness, how they were supposed to dispose of everything. He had to teach them about hygiene. He had to teach them all the aspects, uh, the detailed aspects of their lives, simply because by the time this rolled around, they had forgotten all of that. You know, they had they had, were under the mindset of being slaves in Egypt all this time. And so God had to do a couple of things. He had to bring them out of Egypt, but he also had to get the Egypt out of them. And that's mm. why a lot of times they wandered in the wilderness. Uh, you know, one of the reasons, you know, you might have heard it said before, but it's only a 10-day journey from where they were crossing the Red Sea to get to the promised land. But because of the enemies that were in the land, God knew as soon as they came out of Egypt, they weren't ready to fight for the promised land. And they would have crumbled. And, you know, as they, as they did all throughout their journey, they would have started crying, wanting to go back to Egypt. And so God had to route them around some of their enemies and, and bring them. And it's interesting, if you have a Bible that has maps in it, most of them will have a map of the journey that the children of Israel followed in the wilderness. And if you look, it's a great big circle. They just went around and around in a big circle in the wilderness, what we call the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, what God was doing was having to get Egypt out of them so that he could get them to a place that they could uh, bring, uh, they could be in a relationship with him. Now, one of the first places when the children of Israel came out of Egypt that they stopped was after the, the Red Sea is God brings them to the base of Mount Sinai to introduce himself to them. Now, they had not, they had seen the miracles. They had, you know, experienced the things that happened in Egypt. But as far as a direct exposure with God, they really had not had that up to this point. So God delivers them. He brings them up to a certain point. He brings them to the base of Mount Sinai. And what he does, and I love what uh, Mr. Booker said in his, his book, he said God wanted to give them a calling card so that they could begin to understand who he is. Okay. So go over with me to Exodus chapter 19, please. Exodus, the 19th chapter. And I'm going to read uh, verses 17 through 20. Exodus 17, verses 9, uh, excuse me, Exodus 19, verses 17 through 20. And it says this, it says that, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was completed completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in a fire. Now, I want you to pay attention to the terminology. It's smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. You know, what's interesting is that's the same terminology that Abraham used when the covenant was cut. And you remember it's recorded in Genesis that he saw a, a, a pillar of fire and uh, a column of smoke that looked like smoke coming out of a furnace. 
And so that's the way it was equated at this point. And it says in verse 19, and when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. So here you have this great group of people gathered around the base of this mountain and fire descended, smoke descended, a cloud descended on top of the mountain, and God began to reveal himself to the children of Israel. Now, you know, this wasn't a thing where he was like the wizard in the Wizard of Oz, and he's got fire and smoke and all that going on trying to scare the people. That's not what God was wanting to do. There were some things that he was trying to reveal to them, and what one, the main thing was is he wanted them to realize he is the great God, the most high God. There's nobody greater than him because you got to remember the culture they just came out of worshiped anything and everything, had thousands of gods. And so here's God revealing himself to the children of Israel as this powerful God, but yet a God that wanted to have a relationship with them. He wanted to be their personal God. And so when Moses goes up on top of the mountain, you know the story, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments to be his calling card. Now, there's something that you need to understand and uh, that God was smart enough to realize that it was going to be impossible for the people to keep those commandments because of their sin nature that is inherent in everybody that's not born again they are unable, you know, a normal human being is not able to keep the commandments that God gave. You can try, you can do your very best, but at some point, because of humanity and human nature, you will uh, fail at that. So what were the commandments given for? Well, they were given to be a mirror to the people of two things, how sinful they are and how holy God is and to highlight uh, to them their need for him. Here he is. He's wanting to be their deliverer. He's wanting to be their redeemer. And so he wants to bring them out of the condition that they're in. And so then when the people see him for who he really is, God's desire was is that they would fall down and worship him because of his great grace that he has poured out upon the people. Because again, think about this now. And again, remember this as you're, as you're meditating on the 40-year journey that they were on. All of these people were part of the covenant relationship that God had with Abraham simply because they were born of that family. They were physically born in the family of Abraham. So therefore, they were heirs of that covenant. And so they could participate and receive the grace that God was wanting to pour into their lives because of their, their covenant. Now, when Moses was on the mount, God gave him the Ten Commandments, but then he also gave him some additional instructions. Let me tell you what those were. Number one, God gave Moses instructions on how to build a tabernacle. Now, if you, we'll touch on this later, but the main reason for the tabernacle was so that God would have a place that he could come down 
and dwell among his people. That's what he said. I desire to be their God, and I desire to live among them. And here's the good news, y'all. God's mind has never changed in that. He still desires to live in and among his people. That's why when you and I receive Christ and we get born again, God comes to live on the inside of us. I mentioned Sunday, uh, you know, that the Bible says we are the tabernacle. We are the temple of the Lord. And so God's plan has never changed. He still wants to live among his people, still wants to fellowship with his people. And so he gave Moses the instructions on building this tabernacle. Number two, he gave Moses instructions on establishing this elaborate system of sacrifices. And we'll talk more about that later, but there's a system of sacrifices. And if you've ever read through uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you know there were very detailed instructions about what type of sacrifice, when the sacrifice was to be offered, uh, if you couldn't afford the sacrifice to, you know, a lamb or whatever, here's what you could do instead. And so there was a ton of very specific instructions that the people were given about this system of sacrifices. And then number three, the third instructions that Moses was given was about ordaining a priesthood, setting up a priesthood so that there would be a representative for the people to God and God to the people. And so there was this priesthood that was set up. And of course, if you are familiar, you know that Aaron, Moses' brother, became the first high priest. And there was instructions on what all they were supposed to do. So after this was done, and Moses receives the Ten Commandments, and incidentally, the second set of Ten Commandments, um, and then the tabernacle is constructed, um, turn over to Exodus chapter 24, and I want us to look at a, a verse there. So, so after the tabernacle is constructed and it's dedication time, Moses takes the blood of the sacrificed animal, splashes it against the altar, then he publicly reads the Ten Commandments and the other laws before the nation, then he throws the blood of the same sacrifice on the people and then sprinkled blood on the book of the covenant containing the Ten Commandments and all the laws. What was he doing? Well, let's look at Exodus 24 and verse 8. The New King James says this, And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So, so now we've got a third covenant where God had made a covenant with Abraham. God had made a covenant with Jesus. And now God has made a covenant with the children of Israel after all this was constructed. And so that's what the blood was for. Now, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but I'm going somewhere. Keep tracking with me, okay? Here's something I want you to realize. God never intended for the Hebrew people to approach him by trying to keep the Ten Commandments. That was never the plan. He knew they weren't capable of doing that. So what, what was it? What was he trying to get them to do? He was trying to get them to understand that blood 
was shed for the forgiveness of their sin. And what God intended was for people to know the commandments and that the sacrifice is what made the way for the people to be able to approach him, not trying to keep the Ten Commandments. And isn't it interesting, y'all, even today, you know, the devil and religion still tries to get people to obey commandments to get to God. You know, his plan, his, uh, the devil's method of operation has never changed. Religion it will try and get you to do everything to be able to approach God. A relationship with God is based on God did it through the sacrifice. And of course, in our case, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and the blood that the Lord Jesus shed, that is what gives us relationship with God. So the Hebrew was not to approach God by the Ten Commandments, but by and through the sacrifices offered by the high priest. Okay. So let me just flash forward just a little bit. Who is our high priest? Jesus. Say it good and loud, Brenda. Jesus. Yes, yeah, right. The Bible says that Jesus is our high priest. Now, what did he do? The Bible says he sacrificed his own self for us and took his own blood into the Holy of Holies. And because of what he did, that is how we can approach the Father. Okay, so good news. So what God established in this old covenant setup was a temporary preliminary system pointing the Hebrew in the direction of the new covenant so that they could recognize that the, quote, seed of Abraham was coming and they would be able to see him when he got on the scene. And so he was painting the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ so that when he showed up, the people would be ready to receive. And of course, we know looking at it from this side, they weren't ready to receive. So what I want to do tonight is I want to, the three things that Moses was instructed about, the tabernacle, the uh, elaborate system of sacrifices, and then the priesthood, I want to begin talking about those instructions. Because again, all of this is based on covenant, okay? So what I want to do is I want to talk about this earthly tabernacle. I'm going to endeavor to show you some, some pictures here. So let me uh, share a screen and show you. There we go. Can you see that? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Now. What I want to do is I'm going to show you some, some pictures, all right? So here is just an overview of, if I can get it to go. Okay, there's a picture of what the tabernacle looked like, okay? And uh, let me just tell you a little bit about that. This would be the place where the Hebrews would bring their sacrifices for sin and their sacrifices of praise. This is where they worship God, and this is where the blood sacrifice was offered. And this could only take place at the tabernacle. They couldn't do that at home. They couldn't do it if they were in a different land. It only could take place at that tabernacle. And this was the only way that they could approach God was through 
this tabernacle. Now, I'm sorry, it's, you know, a cartoon. Obviously, we don't have pictures of it, but all right. Now, if, if and again, I'm just giving you some highlights, but I want us to uh, look here. Let me back up here. Now, this is when the instructions were given to Moses about how the Israelites were to camp around the tabernacle. So I want to wanted to show you this. The, the 12 tribes were divided up into three or four groups of three, okay? So in the middle there, you have the, the, the tabernacle and where it says Levi, and that's because the mm -hmm. Levites were to minister in the tabernacle. And so you had the camp of Reuben, you had the camp of Ephraim, you had the camp of Judah, and you had the camp of Dan. Now, what I want you to understand is, is that the tabernacle would always face the east. The gate that the, that the priests and the people would enter the tabernacle always faced the east. So that's why you see uh, the camp of Judah is down to the bottom. You would think that that's the south, but it's not. It's the east, okay? Now, a couple of, of interesting things there about this gate is the gate was always to be facing east, and in order to gain access through that gate, you had to have an acceptable sacrifice to enter in. What does the psalm say? That we enter into his gates with what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And we enter into his courts praise. with praise. The Hebrews 13 says that we offer up the sacrifice of praise. So what gains us access into the presence of God is, of course, what Jesus did for us, but the way we gain access into that is through and by praise and our worship. That's what gets us into the presence of God, and we talked a little bit about that uh, Sunday. If you want to make note of a couple of scriptures uh, in Ezekiel chapter 43 and verse 4, Ezekiel 43 and verse 4, Ezekiel wrote, and he said, And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. Okay? And incidentally, the temple, when it was constructed, was built based on the same thing. Okay? John 14, 6, you remember I said the gate was the only way to get into the tabernacle. Well, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is our gate, our access point into a relationship with God. And incidentally, the scripture says that when Jesus returns he will touch his feet on the Mount of Olives. The Mount will split. Then Jesus himself will walk through the Eastern gate of the city. And that's where he will go. And he will establish his rule and reign there upon the throne of David. Now, if you've ever seen pictures, uh, and I didn't include one, but if you've ever seen pictures of even modern day Jerusalem, the Eastern gate is all closed up. And what happened is during the Crusades back in the 15th century, uh, the Solomon, Solomon, the Magnificent of the Ottoman Empire, 
heard that Jesus had declared or that it was declared in the scripture that Jesus was going to enter in through this eastern gate. And so what he did is he had the gate bricked up and closed up because he didn't want anybody else to be able to come in and take control of what he had conquered during that time. And so even to this day, the eastern gate is still bricked up and there's a cemetery right in front of the eastern gate. Well, I got good news for uh, or bad news for whoever, but anyway, that's not going to stop Jesus one bit. A brick or uh, a cemetery is not going to stop him, all right? Mm -hmm. So that's, what's, that's what the eastern gate is, the significance of that, okay? So let me go to uh, the next slide, okay? And there is what the layout of the, the tabernacle looked like. Now, the tabernacle was about half the size of a football field. So if you can imagine half the size of a football field inside that border there. And so these were the things that were inside that tabernacle. So I'm going to spend a couple of moments looking at that. You see the gate there and the gate would be pointing to the east, the opposite side. But so the brazen or bronze altar that you see there towards the middle this is the place where the priest would kill and offer your sacrifice. So when you bring your sacrifice to the tabernacle, this altar was where the, the sacrifice would be killed. And then this would be the place where the burnt offering would be offered up. Now, remember, you don't approach God by keeping the Ten Commandments, but by the blood sacrifice. That is what is acceptable to him. So as a Hebrew person, what you would do is you would approach God by faith believing in your heart that through the blood covenant, your sins are being transmitted to this animal. The slain animal then becomes your substitute. Of course, you know that the blood of the animal cannot take away your sin, but the blood of the animal will cover your sins until God himself comes to take them away. That's why it's very important, y'all, that you understand that in the New Testament, the blood of Jesus does not cover our sin. The blood of Jesus removes our mm -hmm. sin. We are cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus. We're just not covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Under the old covenant, it covered the people's sin. Under the new covenant and Jesus' sacrifice, sin is washed away to be done away with. And so in Ephesians, just make a note of this, this altar represents the cross and the blood was poured out on the altar just as the blood of Jesus was poured out on the cross. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2 says, and, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And mm -hmm. so that's what Jesus did. Now, the next thing we want to talk about is that bronze laver that's right there in the middle. And this was a large basin. Let me, I have a picture of it. There's the gate. That's what the gate looked like. Okay. There's the brass altar. That's what it looked like. You'd have coals down there in the bottom. And then the sacrifice would be burnt there on the top. This is what the bronze or brass laver looked like, laver, however you say it. And uh, this was a large wash basin. It was made of polished brass, and uh, it was so polished, it looked like a mirror. It was that shiny. 
and the priests had to wash themselves as they would get dirty doing their priestly duty. You can imagine if you're constantly sacrificing animals, you, you know, blood is spattering everywhere. You, their garments are going to be covered in blood. Their, their physical bodies are going to have blood on them. And so it, it showed the priest how dirty he was, but it also provided a way for cleansing. And what this represents is the word of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. You know, that's what's awesome about when we get into fellowship with God and we spend time with him. You know, oftentimes we things that need to be changed about us get revealed. And so what you need to understand, it's the word of God, cleansing and washing ourselves with the word of God as if it's water in this laver, and that is what provides cleansing for us. And this is a continuous process. You know, the priest didn't go just one time and get clean. No, as, as time would progress and he was offering the sacrifices, he'd have to repeatedly go back to the laver and wash himself again and again. And so that's exactly what you and I have to do. All right. Now let's go here. There's an example of the priest washing in that laver. Okay. Now what I want to do is I want to talk about this inner court. Okay. We had the outer court where those three things were kept. Then there was a tent in the middle that was covered or towards the end. And this would be the, the inner court. And so let's talk about some things that were in the holy place or the inner court. The first one is the golden lampstand. Now, you're probably familiar with this. This is a menorah, and you see them come out at Christmas time and Hanukkah uh, among Jewish people. The menorah or the golden candlestick was very neat. The way it was constructed is oil was placed in the center stick there that was the center post of that. And it was allowed to flow out to the other uh, branches. And so every morning, the priest had to go in and make sure there was oil in the lamp and to trim the wicks and make sure that the light remained continually lit. It was never allowed to go out. And so the holy place, because it was covered, was dark. You know, can you imagine going into a big tent? Uh, and it's pitch black on the inside. Well, this the this menorah, this candlestick, were, was supposed to stay lit all at the same, you know, uh, 24 hours a day. And what this represents is the Holy Spirit. You remember where uh, in the in John the Revelator saw the Holy Spirit and said that he was like seven golden lampstands. Well, this mm -hmm. is what he was describing. In John 16, verses 8 and 9, it says that, that when he, the Holy Spirit, is come, the first thing he'll do is convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me. And then verses 13 and 14 says that when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Now, the purpose for this candlestick being in there is that once a year, when the priest was allowed to go in here, that the candlestick lit the way into the presence of God. And so the Holy Spirit, who is our 
our teacher. He is the one that brings revelation and insight to us. He's the one that leads us into all truth, and he will not speak of his own, Jesus said, uh, his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come, and he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine, and he will show it and declare it unto you. And so just as the priest had to daily trim the wicks and make sure there was oil present, the believer must stay filled with the oil of the Holy mm -hmm. Spirit. We can never be allowed to uh, let the oil run out in our own hearts. We've got to stay full of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, he said, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? And he told us that we need to stay full of the Holy Spirit, all right? Now, let's look at this. This is another item that was in there, and this was the table of showbread. There were 12, lo 12 loaves of bread, one representing each tribe, and then a pitcher of wine that sat on the table, these loaves and that wine were to be replaced every six days. On the Sabbath, the priest, uh, the priest uh, eats the bread and pours out the wine. He feeds on the life of God, and it's symbolic of the covenant meal. We read this scripture. I, we won't take the time, but you remember, if you want to make a note, John chapter 6, verses 51 through 58. This is where Jesus said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you had no part in me. And this was symbolic. This was laying the groundwork for what Jesus was going to accomplish. And of course, it's the very same thing that we see in our modern communion. What we receive in the Lord's table is the bread and the wine. And of course, we do that in remembrance of what Jesus did for us. The next item that was in there was the altar of incense. And so every evening, the priest puts hot coals on this altar, and then there was a special formula of incense that God instructed them to put together, and the, the, the priest then sprinkles this incense over the coals. The entire room, this inner court, would stay full of the fragrant aroma from the incense and once a year, the cloud of incense would follow the high priest into the Holy of Holies. So, you know, once a year when it was time for the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, the, the, the veil would be opened up, the high priest would go in, and as he would go in, this cloud would follow him in. This cloud of fragrance would go in. And the scripture says that this fragrance was a sweet-smelling savor in the nostrils of the Lord. And so incense is always symbolic in the scripture of prayer. Okay, let me read you a couple of scriptures. Revelation chapter 5, verses, verse 8 says, Now when he had taken the scroll, Jesus had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. See, what you need to understand is the Bible says in 1 Peter that you and I are priests before the Lord. We are a royal priesthood, and we don't have to wait for that one day of atonement every year. You and I, through the name of Jesus, 
And through what Jesus did for us, we have access to the presence of the Father anytime we desire. And when we go in with our praise and our worship and our prayers, what that does is, and I know you don't see anything, but in heaven, it's a sweet-smelling savor in the nostrils of the Father. And I believe, symbolically, that, it, that a cloud goes into the holy presence of God. And what I love about this is that the Scripture says in Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, John went on to say, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from this angel's hands. And so you need to know that your prayers go up before God. When you pray and worship God and lift up the word of God and and you're confessing the word, and you're praising God for what he's done for you and what the word promises to you, it's going before the Lord as a sweet-smelling savor. It's like incense filling the, the presence of and the throne room of God with the prayers of the saints. Hallelujah. And so then the next area that we see, there's the altar of incense again. Then there's the veil, and the veil is symbolic of the flesh of the Lord Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. The scripture says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. And so as you recall, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn from top to bottom, just as his flesh was torn for us to make a way for us to have access to the Father. This veil was torn, but this veil is what separated the Holy of Holies from this inner court, and then, of course, the outer court. And we'll talk more about this later, but during the Day of Atonement, what would happen is the high priest would put, in, put on all of his garments and nobody else was allowed into this holy place beyond this veil. And so what would happen is the other priest would tie a rope around the waist of the high priest, and the high priest's garment had bells sewn all around the bottom of it. And so when the, the high priest would take the blood into the Holy of Holies, and he was doing all of the things he was instructed to do, the priest on the outside holding on to that rope would be listening to hear, were they hearing the bells? And as long as they heard the bells moving and they heard the tinkling of the bells, they knew that the high priest had been obedient and done everything that God had told him to do. But if they ever heard the bells stop, they didn't dare run in there to gather up the body of the high priest no, they just had to pull him by the rope and pull him back out from the veil because apparently there was something he was disobedient in. And, and because he ran in and went into the holy presence of God, it ended up costing him his life. And so, you know, you just don't go into the presence of God any old way. And so mm -hmm. that's what this was for, that you go through that veil 
And then inside the Holy of Holies was a couple of things. Number one was the Ark of the Covenant. You're probably familiar with the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and incidentally, if you've ever seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, uh, Steven Spielberg had his people do a tremendous amount of research into what the Ark of the Covenant looked like, the size of it, and all of the particulars. And so when you watch that movie and you see the Ark of the Covenant in that movie, it is very accurate to the description and the measurements that were given to in the Old Testament. So it can kind of help you picture that in your mind. Now, the Ark contained three things. Okay, there's a picture of it. All right beautiful piece of furniture. It was made of acacia wood and was covered in pure gold. There's another picture of it. All right. And there were three things that were in the ark. One was Aaron's rod that budded. There, there was a, a, a rod, a staff that Aaron carried. And because of uh, God's miraculous power and demonstration, it budded. Okay. And uh, what the reason that God did this was to prove that Aaron was the one that was ordained and called to be the high priest. The people rejected him, but God did not. There was contained in there a pot of manna, and that was the people's rejection of God's daily provision. If you'll remember, you know, they, they moaned and complained a lot because of you know, God was providing manna for them and they were tired of the manna and so forth and so on. So they rejected God's daily provision. So they rejected God's leadership and the one that he had called. They rejected God's daily provision. And then also inside there were the broken tablets that Moses broke when he came down and saw that the people had built the golden calf. And this is symbolic of how the people break God's commandments and fall short of his holiness. So I want you to understand, inside this Ark of the Covenant was contained all of those things, those three things. Now, there's a reason that God had them put, or had Moses put that in there, all right? God looked down and he saw this. Now, in the Holy of Holies, this was the place where God his presence would be manifested. So if you were a Hebrew out in the camp and you saw the cloud by day and the fire by night, it was emanating from the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Between the two cherubim there was called the mercy seat. And so every year, once a year, the high priest would go in and sprinkle blood on that mercy seat in between those two cherubim there. And so um, God looked down and he didn't look and see the, the people's rejection of his chosen leadership, the people's rejection of his provision, and the people's rejection of his commandments. No, what God saw through the mercy seat, and the reason it was called the mercy seat was God looked and saw only the blood that had been offered up for the people and their sins. God didn't see the Ten Commandments and the failure and the shortcomings of the people. He saw the blood on the mercy seat. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 says this, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted 
like as we are, yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Let me say this to you. When you sin and, and when we fall and we miss the mark, the last thing you feel like doing is running to God with that. But let me tell you, that is the best thing that you could ever do. When you <laughs> sin, run to the Lord. And here's why. God is aware of your sin, but he doesn't see you through that sin. He sees you through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees you through what Jesus did for you. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And so when you and I are looking at these things and we're studying these things, you need to understand something too, that the this earthly representation was a model of what was in heaven. Somebody said, well, why did Jesus have to sprinkle his blood on the utensils in heaven? And you need to understand, it's because of Adam's sin. Adam's sin reached all the way to heaven. Mm -hmm. Now, it didn't affect God, but it tainted what God's purpose and what his plan was. And so Jesus had to come shed his blood so that the uh, heavenly utensils, the heavenly holy of holies, and everything there could be sanctified and cleansed by and through his blood, never to be affected by the sin of mankind ever again. And that's why his sacrifice was so complete and so perfect. And so God's purposes have never changed. The Ten Commandments, Religion or man's efforts cannot provide cleansing and forgiveness. Only shed blood can do that. And it was all, all of this was merely designed to send you running to the real tabernacle and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so let me just say this, and then I'm going I'm to wrap up. If you'll recall in John, I believe it's the 20th chapter after Jesus was resurrected from the dead and Mary Magdalene uh, found him in the garden. And you remember he revealed himself to her and she wanted to embrace him. And he said, don't touch me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Well, here's what you need to understand. The high priest, once he was cleansed and purified on the day of atonement and was made ready to go into the Holy of Holies, if he touched anybody or anything outside of that Holy of Holies, he would be unclean and would have, would have to go through that whole cleansing process again. Mm 
So what Jesus was telling Mary there at the, at the tomb was, Mary, and this is my paraphrasation, but Mary, don't touch me because I am purified and I have to fulfill my high priestly duties. Now, the scripture says that he ascended to heaven. Now, we know that he ascended 40 days later, but I believe the scripture teaches that he also ascended to heaven with his own blood, entered into the holy place for us, sprinkled his own blood onto the mercy seat, and then he came back to earth to minister to the disciples. And the reason that we know that is because, if you'll recall, just a few days later, he appeared to the disciples and to Thomas in particular, and he told Thomas, he said, don't be unbelieving, but believe. And then he said, Thomas, take your finger, put it in the nail print in my hand, take your hand, thrust it in my side, and be faith, be full of faith and not doubt and unbelief. In other words, he gave them permission to touch him. So what that says to me is that he had performed his priestly duties at the time and had taken care of what, what his own blood was assigned to accomplish in purchasing our redemption. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so we're going to pick up right here next week, and we're going to continue on. There's a lot of great things. Let me see if I missed anything. Nope, that's it. So we have this better covenant that is established upon better promises, and that is what our relationship with God is built on. And so I, I, I love this stuff, and I'm, I'm hoping you're, it's ministering to you as well. Amen? Yes. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.